0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden. This is episode 34 where we'll talk about the life and reigns of three kings.
1: Yes, we are continuing our journey through the Battle of the Two and now sort of three main dynasties around in Sweden in the late 1100s and the early 1200s. Last time around, we looked a bit at the founding of Stockholm. So, we'll do a bit of a recap on the royal kingly situation before diving into the reign of the II. But before that, it is time for the Swedish phrase of the week.
0: Exactly, and this week's phrase is en I handen en tio I skogen. So, that literally translates to English as Better one bird in the hand than 10 birds in the forest.
1: Okay. Um, so it's good that you, even if you've only got one, like to eat or to, to have as a pet? Or <laughs> what's the story?
0: Well, the meaning is that it's better to have a little that is certain than to have a lot that is uncertain. Even if it's just one bird, it's better to have that one bird in your hand than to have 10 birds that are maybe flying around somewhere in the forest. Uh, Sort of an example of the use or the intention behind it is maybe to say that it's better to get a one-bedroom flat that you know is for sale than wait for a two-bedroom flat that might be up for sale later. Like you should go for the option that you know is certain, even if it's a little less.
1: Yeah, so you could have like a crazy, drunken neighbour who shouts at your other neighbours, but you might not want her to move because the person who moves in instead of her could be a murderer.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. It is better to have a little that is certain, better one bird in the hand, than a lot that is uncertain, than ten birds flying in the forest.
1: Okay, well, hopefully this episode won't be too uncertain. Uh, Although, as always, with this period of history, we aren't sure of certain exact dates and things because we're still not at that point where the Swedes are writing down every little detail. So there's a little room for imagination.
0: Definitely. Definitely.
1: So, yes, time to step back in time to 11.96. Uh, Let's recap how we got here first, though. And remember, for all of the last few episodes based on kings, not last time on Stockholm, but the episodes before that, and for today, we have some family trees that I've made and put up on our social media so we can keep track of who is who and who is married to who and uh, which kings are related (laughs) to which yarls and all of this kind of crazy because
0: stuff because it is indeed quite complicated that you've done a good job with those family trees because even we get confused
1: yeah and we did have a couple of messages on uh, social media asking if we were going to be doing them at, almost exactly at the time that we published them so some of our listeners have been thinking the same <laughs> thing so that's good but yeah, back in episode thirty-two, four murders and a funeral, we started off with the death of King Sverker, the first Sverker. Mm-hmm. He was succeeded by the first member of the Eric dynasty, Eric the Ninth, and then we had a Danish pretender called Magnus. Who murdered Sverka? He then murders Eric too, potentially with the help of Sverka's son Karl, who'd been living in exile. And whether or not these two men were allies, it soon descended into conflict. Karl kills Magnus in a battle, but a few years later he himself is killed, with Eric the Holy's son, Eric the Ninth's son, Knut, returning from exile himself and taking the throne. And the youngest son of Karl himself is exiled. So, basically, a king comes in, is killed, his young son goes in exile and the rival comes in and then that repeats. <laughs>
0: yeah. It was during Knut's relatively long reign that we saw the real rise of the Bielbu family, with Birgobbrosa becoming Jarl of Sweden and seemingly taking a lot of power behind the scenes. Then, after quite a stable reign, Knut dies, either in 1195 or 1196, actually of natural causes, which is something that not a lot of uh, the kings had the fortune to do. Knut had four sons and a daughter, but none of these were of the age where they could take the throne, so instead, Jarl Biabrusa, who is very much still in control of the political and royal machinery of Sweden, throws his support behind Sverko, son of Karl from the Sverko dynasty. This is an example of what Professor Di Karison calls the Bielbu family's pragmatic politics effectively diluting the power of the Erich and Sverker dynasties by supporting a different side each time a new king is due.
1: Yeah, and that in turn means that they have all of the power. Mm. So, yeah, or at least a lot of it behind the scenes. Um, This pragmatism very much continues this week. After Knut dies, Jarl Burjabrusser summons the now adult Sverker back from exile and has him proclaimed king, putting the full weight of the Beelbu family behind him. And this Sverka is, uh, yeah, proclaimed king Sverka II. So I think we should maybe just call him Sverka II from now on, or Sverka II. Um, The Eric dynasty accepted this because they were promised that someone from their family would get to succeed after him, continuing this rotating power structure that's been around for quite a few decades by now. After all, Knut had four sons, so they were hoping that surely one would live long enough to take over after the II. By acting this way, the Jarl Bärjabrösa also worked to strengthen his own family's power, as they're quite literally becoming the accepted kingmakers in Sweden.
0: So when Sweden was given, so to say, to the II by Bärjabrösa, Who was Sweden getting? Who was Sverker II? Well, Sweden was getting the son of Karl VII, so two kings previous, who was therefore the grandson of his namesake, Sverker I. His mother was Christina Stigstotter, daughter of a powerful man down in Skåne, which was then, as we know, in Denmark. Sverker was born in around 1164, so he would be just over 30 by now. Solid age for kinging back in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. Yeah. He was also club-footed, which I think is the first acknowledgement in contemporary sources of a major person in Sweden having a physical disability. Before becoming king of Sweden, he had married Benedicta, the daughter of an influential Danish man, when living in exile in Denmark. Uh, with this wife, he potentially had three daughters one called Christina, who married a prince of Rostock in modern day Germany, Margareta, who married a prince of Rügen, also in modern day Germany, and finally, a daughter called Helena, who married a mighty landowner in Östergötland. Out of all of them, Helena is definitely a child of his. The two others are more dubious. Uh, Helena was born five or six years before Svekel II became king.
1: So yeah, Sweden is very much getting an adult man in charge, uh, returning from exile at this point. As Sverker's ascension to the throne was backed by the Bielbu family, there doesn't appear to be any real resistance to his kingship early on. In fact, he seems to keep everything quite quiet. In the year 1200, uh, probably everybody's celebrating the start of a new century. Sverker II celebrates starting the new century by granting privileges to Uppsala Cathedral. And uh, one of these includes the right for clergymen to be sentenced in the church's own court and legal system. And he exempts church property from tax. And I think this is some of the stuff we very briefly started talking about in our sort of introduction to the High Middle Ages. We said that this was going to start happening with the church. So now... Sverker II is the one who really kickstarts this sort of separate legal system yeah. for the church. The exemption of church property from tax helped the church make itself more independent from the crown, and his daughter Helena was actually sent off to be educated at Vreta Abbey. Mm. However, drama also kicks off. In 1200, and uh, this is when Sverka's wife dies, so there's a vacancy, <laughs> if, if we can call it that, at the top table. And now, not being one to miss an opportunity, Birger Brusa arranges for his daughter Ingegerd, another one, probably the fifteenth Ingegerd,
0: popular name in the High Middle Ages. Yeah,
1: Ingegerd the fifteenth um, to marry Sverka. Yeah. So this is now the Bjelbu family marrying directly into one of these ruling dinners
0: he does not lay about Bielbrusa. He is just always on it with the political scheming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're not entirely sure of whose idea this is. It does seem much more likely to be from the Bielbu family rather than Sverka, but it could quite possibly have been a mutual decision. It mm-hmm. would make sense for Sverka to be directly related to the Bielbo family. And if you uh, maybe remember, the mother of this Ingegard was the widow of the Danish pretender Magnus who murdered Sverker I, the current Sverker's grandfather. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, another example of Swedish kings marrying the ex-wife of a Danish rebel who's killed other Swedish kings.
0: (laughs) This is when it becomes really, like, soap opera-esque in this time. But despite of this, the marriage starts off well. Ingead gives birth to a son called Yuan just a year later in 1201. Uh, This adds to the odd power dynamic in the kingdom a bit because this son is now the son of the king but technically not the heir to the throne as the throne has been promised to the Eric dynasty by the Bielbu family however this Yuan is also the grandson of Bielbu so has claims to that powerful Bielbu faction as well it's all very intricate, and this intertangling of the dynasties, well, it can only end in disaster, really.
1: Yeah, because just looking by blood, this Yuan is really going to be top dog at some point, because, yeah, he does seem to have all the right connections.
0: And in 1202, when Yuan is just a year old, birgo Brösa, who's been this powerful figure for so long, he finally departs the scene. He dies in January of 1202. Uh, presumably, the II and Inge Yad feel that they are now powerful enough together to try and stake claim to the entire power structure of the kingdom. After all, they are the perfect mixture of the Bielbo family and the Sverka dynasty.
1: Yeah, so what Sverka does is he appoints his son as Jarl. (laughs) Yes, a one-year-old who can probably not even really walk very much is now the Jarl of Sweden. We Uh, all
0: know what a good idea it is to uh, place babies in a high political office.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And uh, this is, of course, an attempt to ensure that the throne stays in the family by effectively removing the power of the Jarldom from the Bielbu family and installing it into the Sverka dynasty, with this new-found Bielbu blood. Naturally, the rest of the Bielbu family wouldn't really be very happy about this news because they would have assumed, especially the men, that the Yaldum was essentially predetermined to be a male from the Bielbu male line. Birger Brusa was actually survived by three sons of adult age, plus two younger brothers. So these men were naturally looking forward to continuing their father or brother's domination of Swedish politics, especially considering Birger Brusa's daughter was married to the king, so they thought they would have been able to influence the king rather than the other way around. To be told that none of these old and powerful political figures in the kingdom would be receiving the yaldum, and instead it would be given to a child, is definitely going to be a big slap in the face to the Bialbu family. In fact, Yuan is quickly nicknamed the Trouserless Yarl <laughs> because of his age and unsuitableness for the role. Of course, the Eric dynasty themselves took this as a bit of a declaration of war, too, as they saw this for what it really was a power grab by the king. Surely Sverka was now looking to ensure that Yuan would take the throne after him and not pass it on to one of the Eric dynasties, the sons of Knut, as had been arranged with Baia previously.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is all pretty much as stable as a wobbly Jenga tower. And it only needs one change in the circumstances to put the entire system in doubt. And this is what happens here. This is the tower starts to wobble. It begins with the sons of Knut leaving the Swedish court in around 1203. They could see that Sverker had no intention of leaving the throne to them despite previous promises. Uh, some sources say that it was Sverko who exiled them. But whoever took the decision, these four sons of Knut made their way to Norway.
1: Bit of a surprise that it's not Denmark. <laughs> uh, a nice change going to Norway.
0: True. Uh, but moving to Norway isn't necessarily a comfy move. As Norway, just like Denmark, has been at almost constant civil war for nearly 70 years now. In fact, this era is called the Norwegian Civil War era. And in the time these sons are in exile in Norway, we will see a short-lived regency of Håkon the Crazy. I mean, that's someone you want uh, as king, someone called the Crazy. Uh, So probably things weren't that stable in Norway. Uh, This Håkon will then marry the cousin of these four sons, uh, adding a bit of Norwegian support behind their Erik dynasty claim to the Swedish throne.
1: But yes, in 1205, the inevitable finally happens. The four sons of Knut returned to Sweden, and by autumn of that year, they'd settled an estate in a place called El Unfortunately And fortunately for them, this is where forces loyal to Sverka attacked. In the issuing fight or battle... All the brothers were slain, apart from one, handily named Eric, who managed to escape. This estate was burnt down completely and then abandoned, so much so that nobody really knows exactly where we're talking about, just that it was a royal estate in northern Vestiotland. A number of sources mention this battle, including a few Abbey Chronicles, which are starting to enter the historical record at this time. One says, 1205, The killing at Elyaros, King Knut's three sons were killed. And another one, 1205, the killing at Elyaros, where King Knut's sons were killed the 14th of November. And then one more, 1205, a battle stood at Elyaros, and King Knut's sons were killed.
0: The Eric Ulois Chronicle also has this to say. So King Sväkar killed the sons of King Knut, the son of Saint Eric, at Elgarås. Eric alone escaped and fled to Norway. Because of this, the upplänningar, that's people from Uppland, were fired up in rage against Sväkar. So people didn't take this very well. The Pope at this time, Innocentius III, he was kept informed about the ongoings in Sweden and from his correspondence it seemed like he was quite pro Sverker and anti the Eric dynasty.
1: Which is interesting, considering uh, the Eric dynasty has Eric the Holy in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, the Pope wrote a letter to the bishops of Västmanland, Linköping, and Skara in 1208, in which he says that kings of the Eric dynasty are violent, and kings of the Sverker dynasty are only positive. Uh, the letter, according to Professor Harrison also indicates that all kings, regardless of of which dynasty they were from, had weak power at the time, adding to the consensus image of the kingdom as weak at this point. Uh, The papal letter says that there has been a prallium at Elgaios, which is Latin and means battle, action, fight or pitched battle, But like a lot of battles so far, we don't really know the details of what happened. We know that there probably weren't any fighting cows, though, like uh, in the days of Eric Sägersell.
1: Yeah, yeah. hopefully. (laughs) Which is a shame. Probably not, yeah. we'll, We'll have to trust that there weren't any battle cows. Um, But the drama doesn't end here, because after this battle in 1205, Erik, this surviving son, doesn't stand still. As that chronicle said, he returns to Norway, and this time he gets some troops from some supporters there. Just a few years later, he comes back to Sweden at the head of a large army, so this time he's got more men rather than just a few followers and uh, it seems like the powerful Bielbo family has perhaps joined forces with him too, presumably realising that drastic action needs to be taken to fix the broken system and get them back in real behind-the-scenes power and take it away from their sister. The most important member of the Bielbo family now is Belyabrus' oldest surviving brother called Knut Bergerson he seems to have been offered the position of Jarl in return for his backing of Eric. However, it's slightly confusing as some historians think that Sverka might have appointed Birgabusa's brother as Jarl in place of his infant son. Perhaps the king had realised he'd made a mistake <laughs> with appointing his young son to a high-powered political office and so was trying to get the Bielba family back on side.
0: Should I maybe not have a yarl that can't walk or talk? Mm. Yeah. My yarl is drooling on himself and playing with a rattle. Should I appoint someone else?
1: Yeah, so that could be why. But if he was trying to appoint a viable family member to get the support back of the Beorl family, it doesn't seem to work as Jarl Knut fights on Eric's side in the upcoming battle. Sverker seems to realize he's really up against it at this point and before the battle starts he runs off to Denmark to get some support from his relatives or ex-relatives to be precise uh, there he primarily speaks with a man called Ebba Sunason, the father of his late wife. his first wife, remember, before he married the Biala family, he was married to a Danish woman. And so he's now going to meet with these old ex-family members, if we can call them that. And uh, this man is actually happens to be the brother of the Archbishop of Lund. Uh, So a pretty important Danish family there. And it seems the majority of Sverker's army is now actually Danish. He's not even Commanding many Swedes.
0: So, this awkward situation where one side has uh, hired loads of Danes to fight and the other side has gotten a lot of Norwegians to fight in a Swedish family conflict naturally doesn't end in a nice hug and settlement of the dispute. Instead, it ends in a battle, the Battle of Lena in 1208.
1: And this battle takes place on either the 27th or the 31st of January 1208, and another unusually wintry battle for this time period, which is uh, been mentioned as perhaps a reason why the battle goes the way it does.
0: Erik, like we said, has gathered his own forces, probably in Norway, uh, to take with him to fight Svekjel, who in turn had a bunch of Danes on his side. And just like with the previous battle at Elgar Eos, there are several places in Västergötland called Lena, and historians don't know which of these the battle refers to, uh, but it happens somewhere. Now, whilst we don't know too much about what actually happened in terms of tactics and strategy and details, there are numerous Abbey sources that have survived and they quote the results of the battle. And this is why so many historians agree that it did actually happen. So let's read out just a few of these uh, Abbey chronicle quotes. 1208. Ebbe and Lars, sons of Sune, fell. Battle of Lena took place on the 31st of January. 1208, Battle of Lena. Sverker driven to flee. The Danes fell after much bloodshed. Among them fell Ebbe and Lars, sons of Sune, from Denmark, great warriors. The other Danes fled in much disgrace. Battle stood on the 27th of January. 1208, the battle of Lena was fought and King Sverker was driven to flee, and the loss of Danish lives was great. Among them fell Ebbe and Lars, sons of Sune from Zealand, notable warriors, and the other Danes fled.
1: And finally, a bit of a longer one, 1208. This same year it was fought hard at Lena in Vesterjurtland under the command of Sverka, son of the King of Sweden Karl. Here, many and notably brave hordes from Denmark, under the command of Commanders Eber Sunason and Lars, his brother, very brave warriors, sons of the Jarl Suna, a Zealand man from Knatterorp, both sides suffered great losses and both commanders were killed. So, there we have it, uh, quite dramatic. Historians also believe that Jarl Knut was also killed in this battle, plus his uncle, that other brother of Beja a man called Magnus Minichweld. Both don't appear in the story later on. So, in summary, Sverker has lost the battle, his Danes have essentially been annihilated and his political allies killed in the fighting. But also, half of the Bjelbo family has been killed fighting on the sort of the Norwegian-Swedish side. So, with nobody left to fight for Sverker, the only choice he has is to leave the country and flee to Denmark. One quick thing about why historians think the Danish lost the battle was because it took place in winter and the Norwegian troops would have been much more prepared for a wintry battle than the Danes because it's much colder in Norway.
0: I mean, we see that still today. Norway's much better in skiing than Denmark is. So. Yep. But it's sad times for Sverkel. He has lost the throne and has fled to Denmark. Instead, Eric of the Eric dynasty is now back in charge. But we do have a bit more to say about the battle itself, or at least about the history of the history of the battle, if that makes sense. Some sources from this time don't call Sverker king, which is seen as a way to speak of him in a derogatory way, to make it sound like he was never a rightful king. Uh, The fact that he comes back to Sweden with a foreign force also makes him seem like an enemy of Sweden in some people's eyes. He's gone to Denmark and gathered a lot of Danes to then come back and fight in Sweden. Uh, In fact, to bring a foreign army to attack or fight in your own country, that was illegal Or at least it was made illegal soon after Sverker did it in the famous Westergötland law and also in Östgötal law. These laws were written pretty much at this point in time. uh, But since we don't know an exact date, we don't know if it was frowned upon when the battle took place uh, or if it was made illegal soon after. Maybe even made illegal because of what happened at Leena.
1: Yes, because it, it seems quite clear that whilst Erik had some help from Norway, he had more truly Swedish troops on his side rather than Sveka's uh, army being almost completely Danish. And because of this, Danish sources naturally depict Sverker more favourably, that he had just cause to go to battle, and they talk about how brave the Danes were. One Danish source even says that Sverker killed Erik in the battle, which uh, we know is a lie because he survives and is king for a few years afterwards. (laughs) Danish sources are perhaps more uh, interested in the Danish participation and their losses, understandably, and they don't say too much about the ongoing conflict between Sverker and Erik. The crushing nature of the defeat meant that Sverker and his Danish allies really had little hope left and realistically wouldn't be able to take back power after this with an invasion. His relatives were killed in the battle, these uh, high profile Danish political figures and with them any connection to him being able to gather a decent army of any size from uh, Denmark for any retaliatory attack.
0: Some later sources, from the 16 and 1700s, so a lot later, says that 12,000 men died in the Battle of Lena and only 45 survived. This number has been used by later historians, but modern-day historians say that this is definitely not a reliable fact. Some other Danish sources say that less than 100 died, Uh, In fact, sources vary from 45 to 18,000 dead. So that's just ridiculous, really. And modern day historians say that we should just ignore the numbers altogether.
1: That sounds very wise to me. Some people died.
0: Now, the written accounts of the battle from when it took place are strongly influenced by the two sides, the Eric and the Svaka, and their propaganda against one another. They also used different nicknames as propaganda against each other. Sverker, for example, is sometimes called Blåföt, which meant man with great misshaped foot, sort of mocking his disability. He's also called Hack, from the verb hacka, which probably aimed to ridicule the fact that he might have had a stutter. Eric on the other hand is called Eric banned from the land to mock the fact that he had had to flee to Norway uh, he is also painted as an enemy of the church
1: so they both very clearly uh, have excellent claims to the throne, and uh, should be great people uh, to run the country. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of legitimacy, it is only Eric who is crowned king now, and he becomes Eric the Tenth.
1: That's quite cool. Uh, something that even the current king hasn't uh, had the pleasure of doing, has he?
0: What well, being crowned? Yeah. No, no king since the current king's great great grandfather has been crowned in sweden we uh, haven't had coronations since the 1800s
1: so he just wakes up one day he's like oh i'm the king no fun and ceremony and everything
0: no no what happened was that his granddad died and they told him uh, you're king now
1: He did give like a bit of a speech to the cabinet or something. I've seen that video of the current king where he's wearing all his medals and stuff, but he didn't actually have a crown put on his head.
0: Nothing like if you're familiar with the British tradition and you've seen pictures of when uh, Queen Elizabeth was crowned in the 50s, that whole, none of that. We don't do that kind of ceremonial thing in Sweden. Boo. Anyway, back to the 1200s.
1: Yes, back to the 1200s, uh, because we need to know a little bit more about this Eric, who's now been crowned king. Um, we know he was the son of King Knut, uh, one of those four sons who originally hung around in Sweden after their father died and was replaced by Sverker. But as we mentioned, once Sverker tried to change the rotating dynasty system, they left for Norway, and that all led to this battle uh, that we've been talking about. This the X is also the grandson of Eric the Holy, Eric the Ninth. So that's a strong connection back to a, a big king in history. He was born in the 1180s, but we don't know when and, uh, or which number brother he was. He might have been the oldest, the youngest, or one in the middle. We, we don't know.
0: It also seems that Eric didn't receive immediate support of some of the powerful religious figures in Sweden at the time he becomes king. In November in 1208, about ten months after taking the throne, the bishops of Linköping and Skara tried to make Eric reconcile with Sverker and allow the exiled former king to return to Sweden. The church said that they would punish Eric if he didn't allow Sverker to return, and even seemed to get the Pope on side. For this as well. Uh, some sources say that Sverkel himself asked the Pope for help, and it was the Pope who encouraged the Swedish bishops to put pressure on Erik. However, it seems like Erik is uniting his family and the Bielbu family. Uh, after Bielbjörbrosa's son uh, and Jarl, Knut, was killed in the Battle of Lena, it seems Knut's brother, Folke, took over as Jarl. This is clear backing for Eric from the Bielbjör family, showing they support him and also from Eric uh, for the established system as having a Bielbjör family man in the Jaldom. This is especially important in the current war, as, remember, Sverko's wife is a daughter of Biajobrussa, so is a sister of the current Yal. So this remains a real family conflict.
1: Absolutely, and this is the problem when you start mixing the family. Someone's going to end up on the wrong side uh, sooner or later. And in terms of the story, that next act comes quite soon. Eric spends the next 12 months or so ignoring the Pope and Church's warnings about restoring power to Sverka, and the exiled king eventually gives up waiting and invades Sweden again. Uh, Invades being a bit of a a, a word in quote marks because he doesn't really have an army. In 1210, Sveka arrives in Sweden to retake the crown. But by now, the Eric dynasty is fully united with the Bjelbo family, and they take a force of men to a place called Gästrildren, where they meet together, in which is either a very large fight or a very small battle. Uh, it's hard to tell the scale of the engagements from these sources, but some do make it seem like it's just kind of a bar fight, really, with about 10 people on each side. Yeah, so it's uh, interesting times.
0: Uh, Either way, as we have seen in the last few episodes, almost every king has been murdered or died in battle, and this is going to be another domestic battle for the throne between an ex-king and the current king. What we know from reliable historical sources about the battle is this... It took place on either the seventeenth or eighteenth of July, but it's not certain which side started the battle. There are evidence to suggest it could be either Sverker or Eric. Uh, it's not confirmed where Gestrilen is. Uh, it's difficult to match with anywhere on the map and some historians even question the fact that the battle supposedly took place in Västergötland at all and suggest that it instead took place in Uppland at a place that's today called Ystre.
1: In terms of the people present, Swerke had support from the Church and the Pope as we know, but according to a papal letter from November 1208, he had no one else with whom he may count on to find justice, so he's pretty alone and there's definitely no huge army of Danes involved this time. Erik on the other hand was not liked by the Church and as we saw earlier, the Pope had actually threatened him to return the crown or face excommunication, but we know that Eric had supporters in Uppland and the support of the Bielbur family, most crucially. It's not certain if Eric was personally present at the battle, but the Jarl, Jarl Volke, was there.
0: It seems that there were negotiations at first, and it was only when these deteriorated that it resulted in violence and a battle broke out. Uh, ultimately, many from the house of Bielbu were killed in the battle, or if it was indeed a large fight. Uh, and perhaps the only other real fact we know is that both Sverker and Jal Folke were killed. Seeing as Folke wasn't the king, this ultimately means it is a victory for Erik, even if his Jarl and a lot of his allies were killed. Because Sverko is gone and Erik is sort of last king standing. Yeah,
1: exactly. That sounds like a very rubbish reality TV show.
0: (laughs) Some speculate that Jarl Folke was the doer on behalf of Erik and that he provoked Sverker into battle. Erik himself might not have wanted to be too involved because whatever he did, he had the risk of excommunication hanging over his head.
1: Yeah, and this is why some historians view this battle as a blood feud aimed to kill Sverker because Jarl Volker had lost his brother, Jarl Knut, and his uncle, Magnus Minacheld, in battle against Serke previously, so he could use this justification for a blood feud against Saka and kill him without it having any repercussions for Eric. Uh, because of course eric also did have reasons to get revenge on sverka after sverka had killed his three brothers at eluros too but the pope was saying you can't do this otherwise you'll be excommunicated so in many ways this fight or battle of gestran had less to do with sweden as such and more to do with the ongoing family feuds between the three families in an Annul from the Skenninger Abbey in 1210. It says, Battle of Gesteren, the 18th of July, where King Sverker and Volker the Jarl fell. Nice and succinct.
0: So, Sverker II is dead. Uh, a similar dramatic death uh, to his namesake and grandfather, Sverker First. Uh, what do people say about him and uh, his time on the throne now that he's gone? Well, the Eldre Westgötalagen describes Sverker as a wise and capable man. He was appreciated in his kingdom, but the Bielbo family took his life. His own Magor, which we think means brother-in-law, did it to him at Gestrilen, and at Alvastra he rests, and it is spoken well of him. He is, and this is quite amazing, he is the last Swedish king to be killed in battle on Swedish soil. It's
1: 800 years ago.
0: Yeah, there will be foreign wars for our next kings and queens uh, to fight and some of them will indeed be killed in battle on foreign soil, but no monarch dies in battle in Sweden ever again. Minor spoilers.
1: Yeah, there's a good few hundred years left until, say, the last English king dies in, in battle on English soil. So, yeah, Sweden sort of getting one of those uh, milestones out of the way quite early on. But most importantly, Sverker now leaves behind a few family members, including his young son, who is about nine years old at this point of the battle. Sounds familiar? It's almost (laughs) exactly what's happened the last four or five times the king has died. They've had a young son in exile.
0: History just keeps repeating itself.
1: Exactly, but so this nine-year-old son is definitely not old enough to rule or try and challenge for the throne, and he's joined by his sister called Helena, who's still alive at this point and being educated at Vreta Abbey. So, in short, Eric is now well and truly established as king with no real threat from the Sverka dynasty. And Indeed, wider society in Sweden started to finally accept him too. As we mentioned, he officially becomes what is known as Eric X, and for the first time in our story we can say that he was physically crowned in a confirmed coronation ceremony. And this ceremony took place in November 1210 by Archbishop Valerius. It probably happened at the cathedral in Old Uppsala, but this isn't actually mentioned in the sources. Now, this Archbishop Valerius, like a lot of the high-profile church figures, including the Pope, was an enemy of Eric, and the church in general was very sceptical towards the king, so either letting Valerius do the coronation was a way to either win over the church or was perhaps forcing the church to accept him in his position as king. We don't know if he was officially elected as king, as uh, lots of the kings in the previous episodes of our history of Sweden have been done, but we can assume that this did take place as well.
0: But when we talk about Erik's reign as king, for modern historians, it's very hard to get a grip on who he was. Uh, We basically know nothing about him as a person or his policies or politics. We just know that he was using the Bielbu family to regain his dynasty's power as king. In fact, the most noteworthy thing about him that hasn't got anything to do with the fight against Sverker is that we know that he was crowned. In 1210, after the death of Sverker, he married Rikissa, probably easier if we call her Rikissa II, so not confuse her with a previous Rikissa. She was the daughter of King Valdemar the Great of Denmark and Sophia of Minsk, who was the daughter of Rikissa I and the Queen of Sweden with Sverker way back when. So in some ways, this is a slight move from Eric to reconcile with the Sverka dynasty, as he is now marrying the granddaughter of Sverco the First.
1: Yeah, this is quite interesting, but it is perhaps more likely that he married Rikissa the Second to try and appease the Danish royals who had supported his rival Sverka. At this point, Rikissa's brother, Valdemar, is ruling Denmark as Valdemar II, or the Great, and had succeeded their older brother, Knut VI, in 1202. So this is a big connection to the ruling family in Denmark, who uh, is very much in power at the time, and it's kind of a win-win for everyone involved. It's, it harks back to those other uh, marriages with Danish king's sisters that we've seen in previous episodes. In terms of other goings on in Eric's reign, we kind of only really know that in 1216, Pope Innocent II took Sweden under his patronage, and said that Eric was the legitimate king and had the right to not just the Swedish lands, but also to any other land he could win from the heathens. And uh, the Pope had initially been opposed to Eric, as we know, but we don't know what changes his mind. Probably just the fact that he's now well-established in the kingdom by 1216, and it would be more trouble than it was worth to do anything else but become friends with him.
0: Eric's only other contribution to history is his family. He has five children with Rikissa: four daughters and a son. Uh, the first daughter is called Sophia, and she married the Lord of Rostock down in Germany.
1: Rostock getting in- mentioned again.
0: Yep. Yeah. The second and the fourth daughters are seen by historians as a bit dubious in terms of their veracity and they marry minor nobles in either Sweden or Germany. He then has an important daughter called Ingeborg and an important son called Erik, after himself. More on those later in the story, however. Because for now, that is it for Erik. The next thing we know about him is that he dies. He dies at Wiesing's Castle on the 10th of April in 1216 of tuberculosis. Dramatic. Yeah, he was buried at Varnham Abbey. Which lovely. Uh, actually, he doesn't live to see the birth of his son and namesake, Eric, as his wife was still pregnant when he died. Uh, so, this young Eric isn't around to ever see his father being born a few months later, uh, which is quite sad.
1: Mm, sad, maybe a bit worrying for daddy Eric, because, of course, we know that they preferred sons back in the day. Mm. So, he maybe thought, oh no, my dynasty is over or ruined. I've only got four or two daughters. But now we can assume that over these six years that Eric has been uh, reigning as the undisputed king of Sweden, the Bjelbo family have really reestablished their political control. This is because the next king is Yuan, the former baby Jarl and son of Sverka II. Because naturally, this time Eric baby Eric is now too young to take control, so it now has to go to the previous baby who is now grown up in exile and is now old enough to become king so the merry-go-round continues it would have been very interesting to see the results if uh, father eric had had an adult son and and tried to leave it to an adult son when he died but this is a handy way for the biebel family to really keep solidifying their control over the country by ensuring that the rotating kinship continues and returns because Although baby Eric isn't very old, neither actually is Yuan. In fact, he's only just turned 15, so he's just old enough to legally have the powers of the kingship. He's elected king in 1216, and the Sferka dynasty is once again back in control.
0: And for the final time in this episode, it is probably good to check just where we are with everyone else in the story. Uh, so Yuan, the new king, his mother, the widow of Sverker II, she's probably still alive, but the sources don't mention anything about her. Some historians suggest that she maybe spent her later life with her brother down in Skåne or elsewhere in Denmark, but she isn't really involved with Swedish politics. And what about the Jarls and the Bjørby family? So in 1216... The yawl is a man called Carl the Death, as in he can't hear, not that he is death, which would be cool.
1: Yes, uh, indeed. It seems like this Carl probably became the Jarl of Sweden after Jarl Volke was killed in battle in 1210. That's the last time we hear of a Jarl in Sweden during Erik's reign, so it probably means that Karl became Jarl at some point between 1210 and 1216. I like Karl and Jarl. Jarl Karl. Jarl Karl just sounds is quite hard to say correctly. Um, but this Karl is the younger brother of Böja Brusa and Mannes Minnacheld. And by this point has an adult son of his own. So this means that this Karl is actually also the great-uncle of King Johan because Johan's mother was Ingegard of the Björbo family. Hooray! Oh, <laughs>
0: yes. so intricate.
1: Yes. And, uh, but now, uh, as it has been the case for quite a few years now, the bjorbo family's got a lot of control. Jarl Karl is going to be in his 30s or 40s with King Johan only being 15. And Johann was crowned king on the 7th of August 1219 in Linköping Cathedral, which is interesting that it isn't in Uppsala, and also that it's a few years after he's been king, so they're waiting to see if they can control him maybe, or wait for him to get a bit older so he can appreciate the context of his coronation. In terms of facts, we know from the previous parts of the story that he was born in 1201, the year before he was made the Jarl. And uh, this is also the first king whose birth is recorded in sources from the time, so we know that his age is quite accurate at this point. Perhaps unsurprisingly, most historians see Johann as a weak king and believe that Karl the Death had most of the actual power, which uh, certainly makes sense looking back at the story and how we've got to this point so far.
0: Also, the Pope seems to have been a bit anti-Johan initially and there was a lot of correspondence back and forth to legitimise him as king in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Uh, This maybe explains the delay in his coronation as well. Uh, However, Professor Harrison says that the delay in the coronation might indicate some lasting struggle between the Erik and Sverker dynasty. Uh, For example, the powerful Danes uh, didn't want to see Johannes King as the Danish king, who's by this time a man called Valdemar Seier, was the uncle of the young Erik, who was also claiming the throne. Either way, the Swedish Bishop Bingt from Skåra, who co-conducted the coronation, even went to Rome himself to see the Pope about the matter of the coronation. Uh, because of this business with Rome, most of what we know about Johann's reign is from papal letters and church documents. Uh, But we don't know how much the Swedish nobles and royals at the time cared about what the Pope said. Uh, Some historians think they cared a lot, others think they didn't care so much.
1: After all, Erik, uh, previous Eric, didn't listen to the Pope when he said, invite Sverker back, so at least it seems there that the Swedish king does have some sort of agency in these matters.
0: True. Johann's most famous political act early on is to issue privileges to the Swedish bishops, but even that wasn't that earth-shattering. It was mainly confirming what his dad had already granted them. What Johan added was just to make all church property exempt from tax, instead of just certain holdings or belongings.
1: However, we do have one major event which happens in Johan's reign, and for once, uh, it seems, seems like it might have been a while since this happened, it's in foreign policy. And by foreign policy, we don't mean uh, Denmark or Norway, that's <laughs> more internal Scandi politics. And we know that... Sweden has considered the Baltic Sea as very much part of their sphere of influence for centuries now. We just have to look back to uh, the expansion eastwards with the Rus and all of these newer engagements with the Novgorod Republic. But now Denmark is getting in on the action too. Their King Valdemar actually invades Estonia in 1219, and it seems like this has annoyed Johan, because uh, not only is Valdemar actively supporting uh, the rival Erik dynasty at this point, he's also encroaching on areas that Sweden saw as their sphere of influence in the east. As a response to the Danish attack of Estonia, Johan himself went on crusade or war or a raid to Estonia in 1220. He travels east with an army and several bishops, and uh, for those of you reading ahead and who know a lot about the Great Northern War, for example, this has a lot of similarities with Karl Dentalfte, Karl XII, a teenage warrior in the 16 and 1700s who heads to Estonia to fight a big war. And just like the Great Northern War, it all went very well to start off with. King Johan establishes a base at a place called Lihula, where he took over an old fort that was on the top of a hill on an island west of mainland Estonia, actually quite a big island. And from there, the forces went further into Estonia, dominating the population, forcing them to adopt Christianity, and building some churches. After a short period, when he considered himself done and uh, Denmark officially slapped in the face, King Johan left and returned to Sweden.
0: Then it all went wrong. The inhabitants of this island stormed the fort at Lihula and took a decisive victory – Call the Death, the Jal, uh, who had remained in Estonia, he is killed in the battle, and so is the Bishop of Linshöping, who is actually called the Death's nephew. In fact, apparently only a handful of the 500 or so Swedes in the castle survived and made their way to Tallinn, which was held by the Danes. Abbey Annals and the Chronicle of Henry of Livonia describe the scene and Professor Harrison says that the Swedish dominance in western Estonia was lost even quicker than it was won. Indeed, this forces Sweden to rethink its strategy in the east and focus on Finland and the fight against Novgorod. Uh, Sweden effectively decides to leave Estonia to the Danes and some German bishops and the Teutonic knights who are becoming a force in the area as well.
1: Yes, there's lots of... uh... Christian expansion into the sort of uh, Baltic region that we don't have time to go into uh, uh, now, but lots of stuff is kicking off. But back in Sweden, we don't really know what Yuan's reaction to this battle was, but Karl the Deaf's son, a man called Ulfasa, is appointed Jarl in his place. And one final thing about Karl the Deaf is that his seal uh, was discovered in the early 1990s. And it's uh, obviously dated to the end of the uh, 12th century, so around the 1100s or so. So technically, actually, before he became Jarl. This seal is the oldest preserved personal object in Swedish history. So... Not like, uh, you know, uh, that we know it was this person's effects. It's yeah, not, not like just... a, a royal crown which was passed on to many people or a thing in a church or something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: or just like a random piece of a pot That we don't know who it
1: was, obviously, someone's thing at some point, but we don't know who, yeah. So, it's the oldest, oldest personal object in Swedish history, and that's because these personal seals were normally broken into pieces when the owner died. So, then 20 years later, someone can't just go around saying, Oh, Carl the Deaf said I could have all his stuff, or yeah, you couldn't backdate stuff, yeah, Carl the Deaf gave me his house, or or whatever. So, that's why, for some reason, uh, this one must have got lost or forgotten, or maybe kept by his kids or something just no idea why but um yeah it's uh, in the swedish museum of national antiquities that bought it for around eighty thousand dollars in 2001 to preserve it for the nation
0: nice so, yeah. so it's the oldest personal object that can be clearly ascribed to one individual that is so cool
1: it's very cool
0: Ah, oh, go you call the death and your seal.
1: Yes, exactly. But this is probably Johan's last real significant act as king appointing this new jarl, because on 10th of March 1222, he dies at Wiesinger Castle, the same castle as the previous king, from an unknown illness – only 21 years old. Maybe there's some sort of bad plumbing or something in the walls that is causing these diseases and killing all the kings. Um, He was buried at Alvastra Abbey and importantly for the story, he has no sons and had no wife
0: also like Karl the 12th speaking of the great northern war
1: yeah actually very coincidental now without giving too much away uh although it's uh, perhaps quite obvious we're having no sons and uh, no wife and no brothers this is where the last member of the sverka family dies and that means effectively the sverka dynasty is no more at least in the male line there are a few sisters and women hanging around on the edges but you know the patriarchal system we have that they don't count in the list of the sverka family so that's it scratch one sverka family
0: well this means that the eric dynasty has won this uh, last king standing game they are the remaining dynasty now and uh, this centuries-long battle is essentially over
1: with a bit of a whimper, really. Yeah. Of, there's no epic final battle where the two kings charge each other in the mist or something. It's uh... it,
0: it, it's just that one dynasty dies out. Uh, but what about the Bielumbo family, though? This powerful family that has always acted behind the scenes. They seem to be more like... The real winners, if we want to call them that.
1: Yeah, because the only surviving Eric dynasty member is only uh, still a child. So we'll have to see what happens with that part of the story. But before we uh, say a final goodbye to Johan, we should say that the Westerjotland law says that he was an amiable king and his death was much mourned. So that's a, that's a good final word on Johan and uh, in by extension the Swerka dynasty.
0: This has been a regular, nearly hour-long episode, so I think we should just leave it there with the death of Yuan and return uh, to the royal history of Sweden in a future episode. Because, before we go, we have had another Facebook message... This one is from Tim in the Midwest of the United States. Uh, he got in touch about our Swedish phrase in episode 12, The Amazing Adventures of Ansgar, which was The cobbless children go barefoot, or Skilmokker's barn går in Swedish.
1: Yes, and Tim said that out in the Midwest, whilst you won't hear this phrase in English as an everyday saying, it's still definitely around as sort of like an old folk tale or an old saying that you might occasionally hear. And he also points out that Bob Dylan uses it in his song I and I where he sings, I made shoes for everyone, even you and I still go barefoot, which is amazing. Uh, I didn't know about that one. And and, uh, for those who didn't know, and uh, I don't think I I knew. Uh, Tim points out that uh, Dylan grew up in Duluth in Minnesota. And it, so it sounds like he was uh, exposed to this same saying there, even though he doesn't have Swedish ancestors himself. And it's nice to see that it's still around even in the Midwest of America.
0: Very true. And thank you, Tim, for letting us know about that one. And if anyone else wants to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Flatpak History of Sweden. Or you can email us on flatpakhistorysweden at gmail.com.
1: And something that's been up for a a month or so, even though we forgot to mention it in the last episode, is that we've uploaded our episodes to YouTube. And we even have a bit of a cool trailer there, plus a bit of a... Roundup of our first year video, which we've made, in case you want to check us out there. Um, I have some very lockdown long hair in that uh, roundup video, so please excuse the mess for that one. Um, but in general, we're remaining an audio podcast. We're not going to be producing video episodes each week. It's just another place to have the audio available for people to listen to.
0: Indeed, and for now, it's goodbye from us.
1: Hey, doll.